But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are my blessed, my you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's, it's good to see you. My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're visiting with us and you're like, man, I haven't come to church in 30 years because all they talk about is hell and judgment. Um, boy, great Sunday to come. Um, and you can tell us how much you enjoyed the sermon on hell and judgment in the Connect card on your seat back in front of you. <laughs> yeah, so some idiot put this on the preaching calendar like six months ago, and I've been dreading it for about six weeks, so I'm going to avoid it for about two minutes. Um, <laughs> that just all came to me, just like that. I didn't, that wasn't planned. Uh, just real quick, um, so this is our last week on the parables of Jesus. We've, we've gone through a whole bunch of them, and uh, so practically what that means is uh, every series on the How We Grow Wall, there's a section devoted to resources uh, to help you go deeper through whatever it is we're covering. And this, if if you've been putting off buying one of these parable books, uh, they, this is your last week for it. Um, we don't make any money off of that, if you were curious. It's essentially a pop-up store of a little book store over in Louisville that uh, they just let us sell their books here at their, their cost. So uh, those will be over there. And in particular, it's uh, germane to this sermon. I really like the word germane recently, and so I'm trying to work it into my vocabulary more often. It's awesome. Uh, this book called uh, Ministries of Mercy by Tim Keller. And uh, that'll be, if you leave here confused, one of my big goals today is to leave you guys confused. Um, and so if you do that or that happens to you, I would encourage you to pick up that book on your way out. Uh, and then this is a big week in the life of our church. Uh, we've got Good Friday on Friday. Um, and we're excited because we've got two services this year. It'll be right here uh, at Sojourn New Albany, um, and they're at 6 and 8 p.m., and it's a, it's a, it'll be a sad service. It'll feel um, kind of funeral-ish, 
Uh, and that's in part because we want to be a church that acknowledges there's no resurrection without the crucifixion. And you can't get to resurrection without crucifixion. And I would argue everyone in here is either just coming out of a season of crucifixion, just going into a season of crucifixion, or you're smack dab in the middle of it. Uh, and then a couple of days later, we're going to have Easter Sunday which we're really excited about. And our church has been growing quite a bit in the last year and a half, two years, which is, uh, is great. Um, but our service times are going to be a little funky. And we, we've done this once before. And I don't think hardly anyone paid attention. And so as uh, let's covenant as a family together to remember 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And that's mostly so you don't show up half an hour late or half an hour early and be like, what's going on? Uh, so 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And if... Um, if it's just kind of like you and some friends or you and your spouse or you don't have a lot of family uh, commitments, I encourage you to come to the 8.30. Uh, I'm, we're just kind of anticipating that the other two services are going to feel um, pretty full and we'll have an overflow room going and the 8.30 should be pretty light. So uh, hopefully you can make it. It's going to be a big day. And uh, we're going to talk about the resurrection next Sunday if you're like, what's on the preaching calendar? And then, um, you know, our church has been going through a lot of transitions in the last year. And some of you are wondering like, so what's going on with Sojourn? Where are we going? And so after Easter, we're going to spend four weeks talking about where have we been and where are we going? After that, we're hitting the book of James. After that, we're hitting the book of Galatians. And so that will take us to Christmas next year. Um, so a lot to be looking forward to. And now we have this text in front of us today. Right? Okay. Here we go. Make the big bucks. Um, so one thing that is really important that I want, I want us to keep in mind as we go through this story, and this isn't, uh, this isn't just true in this text, it's just a human thing. It's just true for humans. Uh, and that is, whatever it is you love drives what you believe about the future. And, and whatever you believe about the future, whatever your hopes for the future are, uh, they uh, shape, directly shape how you live your life today. Uh, an easy example is children. And uh, I'm just going to assume we all love our children, right? Like sometimes you don't like your children, but even when you don't like your children, we all just don't disagree with me here, okay? Because everyone will look at you, but we love our children, right? And so if you notice as the kids are marching around, we have a lot of kids in that four and five-year-old range. And that's where we start getting stressed out about things like preschool. And I didn't realize there were things like competitive preschools until my kid turned four. And we start talking like, well, is this school gonna have their kindergarten program ready? And is, well, should we do that one? And then that will lead into, you know, one of our favorite topics to talk about as the church is, you know, like, do we do the, the Christian thing and do the homeschool route? Or do we do like the Christian missionary thing and do the public school route? Or then do we do like the money thing and do the private school route, right? Like, which kind of Christian are we going to be? And then we'll all fight about it. Uh, but so it's, we love our children, and I've yet to meet someone that's like, man, I really want my kid to grow up and be a total failure, and I hope they're awful in life, right? Like, no one is saying that. We love our kids. We have a beautiful future in, in mind for them, and so that shapes the way we structure their days today, right? We, have, we love them. We have a vision of the future for them that shapes the way we treat them today. If you don't have kids, uh, maybe you have this neighborhood that you really love, right? Like, I, I just really wish I could live on DePaul, or I really wish that we could live up in Silver Hills, or this one neighborhood in the Knobs, or wh whatever it is, right? You have this dream of where you want to live, and so you start planning today, because the houses never go for sale there, so I'm going to start saving money now, so that when it comes, we'll have the down payment ready. Like, whatever it is, whatever it is you love, it shapes the way you see the future, and that directly shapes what you're doing 
today. This is just a totally human thing. And so this text in Matthew, it's really important to keep that in mind. Um, it's, I would argue it's one of the most beautiful uh, and one of the most difficult in the whole Bible. There's all kinds of confusing things in here, and we just don't have time to go through it all. You could spend the next year and say, I'm going to just sit in Matthew 25. The parallels between Matthew 25 and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 25 and the Beatitudes, the place it holds in Matthew's gospel. And like, this is one of the most important, significant, and complicated texts in the, in the whole New Testament, if not the whole Bible. Uh, real simply, like on, on the one hand, it talks about judgment and hell. Um, which, you know, in our culture today, especially, I, there's not many people that are like, man, I just, just itching for a good sermon on hell today, right? Or like, I just love when someone comes and makes me feel judged. Like, it's, a, it's difficult. Um, and again, it's, it's quite a bit confusing in places. Uh, but, but on the other hand, um, it's a balm to the bored Christian. Like, look, if any of you are just bored with your faith, just kind of mumble amen, right? Like, that's where you're like, man, what am I doing? All these other cool people are doing these amazing things. This girl in my community group's going overseas to be a missionary, and I'm just like going to work and raising my kids, and I don't see anything cool happen. Like it's it's a balm to those who are kind of lilting on the sea of faith. And, and at the same time, it's an invitation to the hungry Christian who wants to really see the face of Jesus. Like anybody want to see Jesus or like be in his presence? Like even if you're not sure about that, you're at church. So something inside of you wants to be in the presence of Jesus. And this text shows us how, not like in this weird abstract spiritual someday way, but in a right now today way. So what's going on in this text is it's showing us a picture of our future and it invites us to be grounded in the love of Jesus today. Uh, and so we have to start here somewhere that's um, it's bothersome to me. Um, because of what it says about our culture, but we just have to start where we have to start, I suppose. And, and I, I think what we all need to hear and embrace is first that judgment is real. Um, this is Jesus's final public teaching, okay? In the Gospel of Matthew, these are the last words Jesus has to say to people uh, outside of his group of disciples. And I would call it um, future history. Uh, so Jesus, and again, these are Jesus's words, and these are Jesus's last words. There's amazing parallels between here and how he finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, these are his last words, and he's talking about something that's in the future, like something that's coming, and something that's history, and that it's a real event. Uh, this is happening. This isn't metaphor. This isn't analogy. Like this judgment, this division is coming, uh, and and this teaching is uh, almost constantly under attack in the last fifty years or so. Uh, and it's under attack primarily by Christians who are, you know, uh, I would say nervous about living in a post-Christian society. And what do I mean by a post-Christian society? We, living in an America that it's not assumed or popular to be a Christian anymore. And so we start trying to uh, move stuff around or shift what we believe about stuff in hopes of maybe gaining back some of that ground. I would say the attack on um, judgment, uh, the doctrine there, it, it's, uh, it's not a new one. Um, it's just really popular right now. And as judgment has come under attack, or the, you know, it's not really going to go down this way, uh, so too has one of the potential consequences of judgment, which is hell itself. Um, and, and we're going to talk about why this is a problem in, in a few minutes. But on the front end here, I would strongly encourage you, if you're one of the people who gets real uncomfortable around hell, um, 
I would strongly encourage you to remember that these are the words of Jesus, okay? Like this is Jesus talking. And it's really tough to say, I'm gonna take this from Jesus and I'm not gonna take that from Jesus. Uh, Here's a test to see how much we've been paying attention the last year and a half or so. What's the number one topic of conversation in Jesus's ministry? What did he talk about more than anything else? Money, all right. In the first service, everybody was like, love. And I was like, wrong. (laughs) You don't listen to church. Uh, What's number two? Second topic. (laughs) Hell, welcome to church, right? Like Jesus spent the majority of his time, uh, and if you wanted to talk about volume of what he taught about, was about money and about hell. And, And so like, People do really, I would, there's probably a more generous word. Um, I think the most accurate word is they do really dumb things around this conversation where you'll find people saying like, I don't like reading uh, Paul or other parts of the Bible. I only want to read Jesus, right? And so they'll set up the system where they'll pit Jesus against the Bible. And it's like, well, Jesus said this, even though the rest of the Bible says that. And here's why that's dumb. Uh, One, what did Jesus use to like defend and articulate his ministry and who he was? The Bible, right? It's like, what? Uh, and then two, Jesus said the whole thing is about himself. When he's walking down the road to Emmaus, uh, he's showing them the Old Testament and how it's all about him. So anybody who's trying to pit Jesus against the Bible understands neither. Uh, they don't get the Bible or Jesus when they try to set up these arguments about Jesus versus the Bible. And so here, Jesus in his last public teaching is saying a great separation will occur. Uh, don't read too much into the sheep and the goats. They were equally valuable back then, okay? It's not like everyone loved sheep and everyone hated the goats. Uh, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament that goats are kind of imagery for sin, uh, Basically, what Jesus is saying here is something that almost everyone would have been familiar with. At night, the sheep go in one pen, the goats go in another pen. It was just a common image of division. And so Jesus is saying, righteous go on one side, unrighteous go on the other. And here's the result. The unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. And we could do a whole other sermon on what what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, But the point that I want you to get first is that this is a real event, okay? This is coming in our future. It's coming. It's going to be real history. And if you accept this judgment is real, it will have dramatic impact on your life today. Uh, The same is true if you reject it. Whatever you think about the future has a direct impact on how you live today. Whenever Christians have properly embraced Jesus' teaching about judgment, Human life has improved and the church has flourished. Across history, when the church has embraced this future judgment is coming, uh, the quality of life of all humans, not just the Christian humans, of all humans has improved and the church has flourished. Whenever it's been rejected or denied, not only has the church flourished, but human suffering has abounded all across And we have abundant evidence of this in the last hundred years when we've created political systems and economic systems that reject any kind of morality, any kind of future judgment, and it's cost us hundreds of millions of lives. Like, this experiment has run its course, denying future judgment, believe whatever you want. Uh, There's current Christian denominations that have gotten rid of this, and they are what we call dying. What does that mean? No one goes to church there anymore, and they don't even look or confess or talk like Christians. 
this idea that there's no judgment, so everything is fine. So just gosh darn it, do your best and do whatever you want. When that mindset has taken place, people have died, literally, and the church has died. It's given rise to totalitarian regimes that oppress and hurt people in the name of the common good. How many times do we need to run this experiment about, you know, human flourishing is the end goal of all political systems and let's get rid of God? How many millions and hundreds of millions of people need to die before we as a people say, I don't think that works. Um, not, mer- I don't think, yeah. I was about to, is that a rain, rain it in there? And so here's the point. And, you know, I'll, I'll get on capitalism here in a second. If you're smart and read between the lines, I'll get capitalism later, okay? Um, uh, if you love Jesus, you have to love all of Jesus, okay? You can't pick and choose which Jesus you want, because the, the whole system will fall down. Judgment is real, hell is real, and like Jesus announces in this text, it's coming. And we must be a people that embrace this reality. Um, there, and if it's embraced without trembling, or if it's embraced with arrogance, or it's embraced to use as a weapon, we've missed it, okay? We, we aren't understanding what's going on here. So there's, uh, I, I want us to understand hell at, I'm going to give you one truth and one question, okay? One truth to think about, uh, one question to reflect on. Uh, So here's the truth. Everyone is invited to the feast. Whenever you're thinking about hell or judgment, understand, everyone is invited to the great wedding feast of the Lamb of God. Jesus has made this explicitly clear. Anyone can be counted among the sheep if they want to be. No one is excluded. Uh, Jesus enforces this idea in nearly every single parable. There's some theme in almost every parable of Jesus inviting all, welcoming all. Uh, and, and here, you know, he says he gathers all nations. He's gathering all people. It's like if you're one of those people who gets uncomfortable when someone doesn't speak English next to you and you automatically get suspicious or nervous, you're gonna be really uncomfortable on judgment day. It, If you get uncomfortable around people who don't look like you or talk like you or vote like you or whatever like you, you're gonna be really uncomfortable on judgment day because all nations, all people, all kinds of people, all colors, all classes, everyone will become, will come. Uh, The invitation of the king extends to all who have ever lived. So as you're thinking about uh, judgment and hell, you gotta understand everyone has been invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. Second, the question, what would you have God do? I'm going to break one of my cardinal rules of preaching here, and I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis, uh, because most preachers quote C.S. Lewis and Tolkien way too much. But sometimes it's like they're trite for a reason, right? Because they're amazing. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this entire book called The Problem of Pain, where he's navigating this issue of if God is so good, why all this pain in the world? Um, And listen to this quote. He says, in the long run, The answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs, give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he's done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. We have to look to the cross and and see that God has gone beyond what we would imagine to bring us home. What else would you have God do to solve this situation? He came in obscurity 
that the king of the universe came in obscurity, born around animals. He lived in humility. He died in agony, and he rose in victory. The, the invitation to his banquet is free and universal. Come to me. The only people who don't make it to the party are the ones who decide to stay home. What would you have God do? If you're offended, if you're upset, uh, if you're hurt by this doctrine of hell and judgment, ask yourself, what would you have God do? The only ones left facing hell and judgment are the ones who look at Jesus and say, I don't want you. If you have a problem with Jesus's teaching here, ask yourself, what else would you have God do? Judgment is real. It's future history. It's coming for us. Uh, and now, now to the uncomfortable part. <laughs> that didn't make you uncomfortable. Um, what, are, what is the nature of this division that Jesus has here between the sheep and the goats? What are the grounds? His judgment is based, at least it would seem superficially, on how we treated uh, five kinds of people. And that's uh, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, and the prisoner. What do all these have in common? You don't actually have to answer. That's a hard question to like answer in the congregation. Just think about what do these have in common? Well, to one degree or another, they're all in terrible shape. They're all very needy, um, incredibly vulnerable. Throughout the Bible, judgment, the judgment of God is... Uh, I want to say almost always, at the very least, very often, related to how the people of God treat the poor and the needy. Um, Or to put it a little more simply, uh, judgment is often related to how we treat people who are in bad shape. Uh, So just one quick example. God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 34. And he says, I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep. For you fat sheep pushed and butted and crowded my sick and hungry flock until you scattered them to distant lands. So I will rescue my flock and they will no longer be abused. He's saying, you people with power and with money and with influence, you used it to take advantage of the oppressed. You used it to abuse the vulnerable, not lift them up. And throughout the Bible, God powerfully shows his solidarity with the oppressed, with the vulnerable, with the marginalized, with the overlooked. And Jesus does so to an even greater extent here. Uh, Did you notice everyone in the story was confused? Even the righteous people? Jesus is like, man, you righteous people did something amazing for me. And they're like, we've never, we never saw you. Not even the righteous knew what was going on here. Uh, Jesus said, it was me that you took care of or didn't take care of. And they both respond with, but we never saw you, Jesus. And he says to them, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying how you treat the poor and the needy, how you treat people who are in bad shape is how you treat me. If you wanna know you know, how much do you love Jesus or how is my affection for Jesus displayed? How is your affection for the, the oppressed, the poor, the needy? How is that showing up? And did you notice how basic and how unappealing these acts of mercy are? 
I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I'll talk to folks in our church all all the time. Um, Because one of the things that we're trying to become a church that believes is that the pastors, we don't exist to do ministry on your behalf. Uh, So like when you say, hey, I want to talk to my neighbor about Jesus, could you come over and talk to him? It's like, no, that's not what pastors do. We'll help you learn how to talk to your neighbor about Jesus. The, The pastors exist to equip you guys to go do ministry. And so I'll ask people, like, how do you think God has gifted you to serve this church and to build up this church? And a lot of times I'll hear some response like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a preacher. Uh, I don't know. I can't, I, I can't sing. Uh, with this idea that it, to be gifted in the church or to be used by God in the church, you have to do something flashy or something impressive, something that garners a whole lot of applause. And like, I'll just tell you guys, and, and it's all over the news. Or just go to Christianity Today and read all the articles coming. Like, there, I don't know that there's anything easier to fake in the church than being a preacher. I mean, it's easy to get up here and put on a good show. And, you know, if anybody's been doing it for a while, they know how to inflect their voice or how to build up the emotions or how can we just, you ever been in the church with the one more? Like, one more, I know there's one more person out there. Let's sing the song again. Or, you know, like how we can rile people up or what will stir people. And everyone's back there saying, oh my gosh, how amazing. How wonderful you are. What a gift. You've got the anointing or all that kind of stuff. And it, it's just so easy for this to be a show. And like, y'all don't know me, right? That's what's weird about this is because you think you know me. Um, some of you know me, but there's a lot of churches where most of the people in the church don't really know the preacher. That, and that's just a scale thing. We had 650 people come to church last week and I can't know that many people. To think about it another way, like, it's easy to go to dinner with a wealthy person, you know? I'm just trying to help people get connected to church, and, like, this guy's going to take me to Ruth's Christ. I'm just going to serve the Lord, you know? Like, which I'm not saying don't love or be friends with wealthy people. But if you hug a wealthy person, um, you'll leave smelling like their $1,000 cologne, you know? And you'll get in the car and be like, nice. Um, if you hug a homeless person, you leave with a much different smell. Should someone see you out to dinner with a homeless person, they will leave with a much different opinion of you. It's much harder to fake this kind of Christianity, the kind that shows solidarity with the people that frankly most of us are trying to avoid. And, you know, for, for a long time, I was, I'm off, sir, I'm off some notes here, so brace yourselves. Uh, this is usually where people get offended. Um, I was a raging capitalist for a long time. Um, and what I meant by that is I would see someone homeless on the street, and I'd be like, what's wrong with you, man? Like, how, how bad do you have to want to be homeless right now? This is America, Jack. Get a job. Hey, could I have some money? You're just going to spend it on dumb, dumb stuff and get a job, you know? And then, and you're like, well, if you busted on capitalism and you busted on socialism, I just kind of believe in kingdom economics and it'll make everybody uncomfortable. Like if your economic theory trumps your Christianity, boy, you've got a real problem. And if, like, if you can't hear anything against whatever your side of the, the aisle is, you've got a real problem because the kingdom of God doesn't fit 
either of those paradigms. And so I had to look at a Jesus who says, yes, salvation is by grace through faith alone. I don't think he's changing that here. But he's saying, listen, I'm coming. Um, And he's going to affirm this over and over in the book of James in just a few weeks. He's like, I'm coming. And when I return, I'm not going to so much ask you a theological question. I'm going to look at broken places and say, were you there? If you want to know how to prepare for me coming back, this is how you do it. And, and God help us for all the ways that uh, our politics, our economics, our stuff, our reputations get in the way of the clear and simple invitations of Jesus. He's saying in the broken places, with the lowly, with the hurting, that's where real faith is. So judgment is coming. Jesus will divide us based on our solidarity with the needy. And so if that's the future, how does that shape our lives today? Well, perhaps first and foremost is we have to be a people that set our hearts on Jesus. As you go through this passage, all the times Jesus refers to himself, you know, my angels, my throne, my glory, my judgment. Like Jesus is the goal of all of this. There's a king and yes, we've rebelled against him. But do you see that from the very beginning, God comes to clothe us and not to crush us? Like even, even back in the garden, what's the first question God asks after humanity falls into sin? He says, where are you? He comes to find them, to, to draw them out, to, to seek them. His first movement is, is grace, not judgment. So it was with Jesus' first coming. He came to us. He died for us. He removed our sin from us as As crowds were cheering, welcome the king on Palm Sunday. You think Jesus didn't know what they were also about to do? The same people, um, I love this, this prayer that we confess every year on Palm Sunday. The same hands raised and singing Hosanna would clench their fists and shout, crucify. Jesus knew that, but he came with grace. That's the kind of king that we serve. So set your heart on him. See your twisted motives and your sin and your suffering wrapped up in his strong arms. Because if you love Jesus, you'll see he secures and shapes your future and that will influence everything you do today. And so maybe you're saying, so is the big takeaway today to love Jesus more? Yes, it is. But what do I do? That's not very helpful. How do I love Jesus more? Uh, here's Here's the stunning part, all right? Like, and this is the stuff that's made me confused for two months now. Um, I think one of the most unavoidable, stunning lessons of this text is that every human has access to the face of Jesus through a needy person. If you get around someone who's broken and needy, the odds are good you are in the real presence of Christ. If you want to see Jesus, draw near to someone in need. And here's what this means in a very concrete, practical sense. Someone confronted me a couple of weeks ago saying I was being too harsh on Catholics And I really like Catholics, so I'm going to quote a Catholic here, and I hope the Protestants get uncomfortable. Um, Here's what Catholics said. Wherever there are people in need of food and drink, clothing, housing, medicine, employment, education, wherever people lack the facilities necessary for living a truly human life or are tormented by hardships or poor health or suffer exile or imprisonment, like on and on, there Christian charity should seek them out and find them console them with eager care and relieve them with the gift of help. 
This obligation is imposed above all upon every prosperous person and nation. And that's from the Catholic decree on the apostolate of the laity, which is a fancy way of saying the priesthood of all believers. What is the duty of every Christian? Show acts of mercy. I'm going to, I screwed this up. Yeah, I went back. Look at this. Wherever people lack the facilities necessary for living a truly human life, wherever there's hardship, wherever there's need, that's where Christians show up. And another thing this text messes with us is that you know wherever these kinds of acts are found, the Christian should rejoice. Even if it's coming from people who aren't confessing Christian things or Jesus, right? Like not only does it please God when humans act this way, but Jesus is near in those places. Maybe someone comes with all this altruism to take care of somebody and the Christian can rejoice that human needs are being met and that person who's serving is going to encounter the presence of Christ in those places. We have to be a people that draw near to the needy and that meet them in their afflictions. And we have to see that this is not a church program. It's not a once a quarter event where it's like, hey guys, we're all gonna be merciful on serve day 2018, where one day a year, all the Christians can feel good because we went to the soup kitchen. Or, you, like Jesus is saying, this is the Christian life. Immersing ourselves in these people, finding these needs. And it's not on the church to create this elaborate program of how we're gonna meet every need. It's you guys as Christians saying, who are the needy amongst me? Where's their brokenness around me? And in the name of Jesus, I will go there. Upon his return, Jesus will not ask us about the flashy, impressive works we've done. Like, God help us if we come to him and say, oh, but Jesus, look at how many churches I planted and look at all these wonderful sermons I preached and look at all these books I've written. And, you know, like that stuff is just easy to fake. And I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate it or that it's not uh, exciting when, you know, with Sojourn Network, when we hit 50 churches and then we hit 100 churches. Like, I'm not saying none of that stuff is good, but Jesus is gonna come and he won't ask us to take a theology quiz either. Did you see that? That's what just messes me up, okay? He finds people pleasing and it seems like he doesn't even ask them any doctrinal questions. And instead, He's looking down alleyways. He's looking in the broken homes among suffering people. And he's asking, did I see you there? So we prepare for the return of Jesus. We grow in our love for Jesus by seeking the face of Jesus. And you will find the face of Jesus in the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the needy. So there's there's just one last distinction that we have to see here. And it's in how Jesus describes the sheep. He says, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Like, eternal life is an inheritance, Jesus says. It's a gift and no one earns an inheritance. No one looks at a trust fund kid and is like, man, you must really worked for that, right? Like, no, dad worked for that and he gave it to you. You don't work for an inheritance. This eternal life is a result of those who are blessed by God the Father. And it, it, frankly, it means that we cannot love this way. We cannot find solidarity with the poor apart from the presence of God. And if you're not uncomfortable yet, here's just a little nugget I'll throw to you. Like this text sure seems to say God empowers some to love this way, even when they don't know him. He, he gives people the capability to love this way, even when they have no idea who Jesus is. And, and then we get all uncomfortable. Well, we've already talked about the parable of the workers in the vineyards. And if, if you want to be, if you want to murmur and complain over the generosity of God and what he chooses to do with his kingdom, then we've got other problems, right? Like 
God can do what God wants to do. And if, if the master of this vineyard wants to be generous to the latecomers, then so be it. The, the point is, if you want to love this way, you need help from God. And if you want to do this, not out of ignorance or blind luck or whatever, but in preparation for Jesus, you must soak in his love for you. And here's how this happens. Like, take the next year and read through the Bible. Maybe some of you are, are pumped up right now, but you won't drum this up by tomorrow, okay? Give yourself a year to read the Bible. And you can read the Bible in a year. And as you read through it, I, I want you to try to answer the question, who does God most often show up for? Or if I had to put a class of people, what kind of people does it seem like God has their back the most? And spoiler alert, it's the poor, it's the needy, it's the oppressed, it's the marginalized, it's the helpless and the hopeless. If, if you spend time in his word trying to answer this question, and then if you get really crazy and start going to these kinds of people, here's the amazing thing you will learn you will learn that you are these kinds of people. Your eyes will be open to the depths of your own brokenness, your own neediness, your own twistedness. And as you look in the face of the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, the needy, all these things, you'll see your own face. You'll see that Jesus has met you in your neediness and he's inviting you to join him in the neediness of others. Rehearse his love for you, his saving grace for you, the ways he's shown up for you and made a way for you when no one else would and allow that love to drive you to the greatest of all Christian virtues, which is love. When you love Jesus this way, it'll shape your future and you'll see that judgment is coming and it will move you to live in expectation of that reality today. I mean, Jesus makes it so clear. They will know you are my people by the way you love one another. As we immerse ourselves in the poor and needy, the world will encounter the real, the face of Jesus, the, the presence of Christ. And as we look into the faces of the broken, we'll find our face there and we will feel the love and presence of Jesus. And like this is the heart of the gospel. On, on the night he was betrayed, don't zip your Bibles yet, okay? Like he looks at the people who would betray him, the ones that would bail on him, the ones that would deny him, the ones that would have shaky faith. And we can't be so foolish as to think that he didn't know. Just like he knew the people shouting Hosanna would be shouting crucify. He looks and he says, hey guys, once this all settles down, remember my body was broken for you. And every time you eat bread, I want you to remember the way I sacrificed myself for you. And after the meal, he takes a cup of wine and he says, this is what seals your relationship with me. It's my blood shed for you. It's not your confessions. It's not your acts of service to the poor. It's not anything about what you do. It's about what I've done for you. And if you want to believe this, here's how to wait in expectation. Um, our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread uh, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrap around it and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left. There'll be stations in the back as well. This is the gospel. While we were broken, while we were poor, while we were betrayers, while we were needy, while we were still sinners, God died for us. And listen, if God is willing to give his own son for us, will he withhold anything in taking care of us? Is there anything he would hold back at this point? 
I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come forward and rehearse the love of God. Let's pray.